Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the Framing Money Laundering Podcast, FML Podcast. I am your co-host, Brianna Hartley. I am a third semester student here at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. I am studying nonproliferation and terrorism studies with a specialization in financial crime management. And I am joined here by my co-host, John. I'm John Nelson. Hi, everyone. I am also studying nonproliferation and terrorism. And I'm also specializing in financial crimes. However, um, what Brianna didn't mention yet is that she's getting ready to take the certified anti-money laundering specialist exam. So we all wish her luck with that. Thank you. I'm going to need all the luck I can. And um, I'm happy to be joining you in this podcast. Now, John, I understand that you're also our resident communion and impersonator and that you specialize in impersonations of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Hmm. Actually, it's uh, interesting you should mention that because uh, I have been impersonating a grad student for four semesters now. Also joining us is uh, Professor Rusin, who has been teaching courses on illicit markets and financial crime for more than two decades. She is a certified anti-money laundering specialist and a certified financial crime specialist and runs the financial crime management program at the Middlebury Institute in Monterey, California. Professor Rusin, welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's dive into it. This first episode that we have, we would like to give our audience an introduction to what money laundering is, how it's done, so that all of our audience can understand what we're going to be talking about in our future episodes. Let's begin by framing the money laundering problem. Ha 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 ha. (laughs) (laughs) What is the impact of money laundering? Now, according to the International Monetary Fund, it estimates that money laundering comprises 2 to 5% of the world's GDP, and that can include financial flows from drug trafficking and other transnational organized crimes. Professor, looking at that statistic, 2 to 5%, that sounds like a really small number. Why, I mean, why should we care about that small number? Yes, it's a crime, but if it's less than 5% even, why are we even looking at this as a problem? Yeah, well, I don't think it's that small a number when you consider the size of global GDP. I think that's a very large number. They really have no idea. Somebody pulled that number out of who knows what when they were initially discussing this. They were working backwards, starting with an estimate of the size of the global illicit economy. And then from there, guesstimating how much of that illicit revenue would have to be laundered. Because not all illicit revenue is laundered. If you're generating cash from drug sales or any other kind of illicit crime and immediately spending that cash without going to any trouble of disguising it, disguising its origin, then you haven't laundered it. So only a proportion of those illicit revenues are actually laundered. Hmm. But it's still a lot of money. We're still talking trillions of dollars. All right. So, Professor, now that that number, 2 to 5%, is a questionable number, 
why is money laundering a problem? Why should we care about this? Ah, very good question. Yeah, well, we know that all of these illicit criminal activities incur a cost. It has negative externalities, not just for the global economy, but it also has social costs that are trickier to measure, although we, we probably can measure them. Therefore, we want to address it. How do we address it? One strategy is to go after the money, make it more difficult for criminals to launder their money, then we can have an impact on the crimes themselves. Excellent. And that's a perfect segue to talk about what these crimes are, what they constitute, what a financial crime is. To begin, a financial crime is a nonviolent action that results in the unlawful taking, moving, hiding, or disguising of money or other value by the use of guile, artifice, corruption, or deception for the benefit of the perpetrator or of another. Now, financial crime is a very broad topic, it's a very broad concept. Money laundering is a type of financial crime. Now, money laundering is any attempt to disguise the origin or purpose of funds derived from criminal activity to conceal the existence of such funds or to move the funds with the intent to commit a criminal act. I think that last part is important, with the intent to commit a criminal act. So things like terrorism financing, mm -hmm. where you're disguising the origin of the funds before the criminal act takes place, also falls under that umbrella of money laundering. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. I think that's an incredible point that you highlighted, something that we will definitely discuss more in future episodes of this podcast. Now, criminal act is important to highlight because in order to be convicted of money laundering, you have to commit a crime to begin with. These crimes to be committed that would constitute the act of money laundering afterwards are called predicate offenses, or they're also known as specified unlawful activities. Predicate offenses are crimes that underlie money laundering or terrorist financing activity, as Professor Wilson mentioned. A lot of these predicate offenses can include anything from fraud, smuggling, human and drug trafficking, it's a wide range of criminal offenses. Basically, anything that you commit that you can get money or value from. However, it is important to recognize that in the United States and in Switzerland, tax evasion is not a predicate offense. Now, For money laundering. For money so laundering, money. yes. Mm -hmm. What that essentially means is since tax evasion is not a predicate offense for money laundering, if you are found to have been evading your taxes, not paying to the tax authorities, they you can be charged with tax evasion, but they cannot charge you under money laundering statutes. In the U.S. and Switzerland. In the U.S. and Switzerland. Now, you still can go to jail. Yes. <laughs> let's let's, let's just highlight that. Just, <laughs> just because they can't get you for money laundering, you could still go to jail for that. <laughs> tax evasion is a huge problem, as we all know, looking in the news. But the fact that you can't be charged for money laundering in the U.S. and Switzerland, I mean, why exactly is that, Professor? Well, you'd have to ask a lawyer and historian, I think, to, to really know why that is the case but I think it's historical legacy. Those tax evasion cases are typically handled by the IRS Criminal Investigations Unit, and they have their own set of statutes uh, with recommended criminal fines and sentencing guidelines, 
and they've been applying those fines and sentencing guidelines for as long as we have had our tax code. So it, it maybe they think it's redundant to then add money laundering charges on top of that. It's not clear. Mm-hmm. Just to add to um, the professor's point that tax evasion can still um, get you a lot of jail time, we have the case of Al Capone, who's kind of a more famous historical money launderer who had been put in prison once for contempt of court, once for possession of weapons, but the sentence that gave him the most time was due to tax evasion, which was 11 years. Even Al Capone got nibbed on tax evasion charges, even though they weren't able to charge him on money laundering statutes. So we're really splitting hairs here because Mm -hmm. it is a definitional issue. It's still a financial crime, but it's just not a money laundering crime. Mm-hmm. In the U.S. and Switzerland. In the U.S. and Switzerland. He was completely different. Strange, strange so bedfellows there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And my colleagues have uh, illustrated um, how useful predicate offenses are in, in um, bringing money launderers and financial criminals to justice. Right, because it wasn't that long ago when most countries defined money laundering as the laundering of proceeds only from drug trafficking. Really? Interesting. Yes. Yes. Prior to 9-11, a lot of countries had anti-money laundering laws in the books that only related it to the proceeds of drug trafficking. And it's only recently that we, well, after 9-11, of course, more countries started adding terrorism financing to their list of predicate offenses. And more recently than that, more countries are starting to add proliferation financing and corruption to their list of predicate offenses, which is, I think, a very exciting development. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And we will definitely talk more about that as we um, talk about the framework of FATF. um, Yes, exactly. Now that we have a definition for financial crime, money laundering, and predicate offenses, how many of these criminals, once they've committed their acts and gotten their money, how do they turn their money into seemingly legitimate funds? There is a process of money laundering, and that process is divided to three stages, the first of which is placement, essentially placing your ill-gotten funds into the formal financial system. Now, that could be done by simply depositing your cash at a bank. Um, one method of placement that criminals like to use is something called structuring. A lot of banks have thresholds in which they decide to report a cash transaction. In the United States, that generally tends to be $10,000 in cash. In the EU, it's the reporting threshold for cash transactions is 10,000 euros, which was recently changed from 15,000 euros. So structuring, ironically enough, something that former governor of Elliot Spitzer was caught for. Is, the governor of New York? Yes, former governor Elliot Spitzer, who some of you may know was infamous for um, prostitution rings. and Threatening to kill someone. He's had a lot of things wrong. Yeah. By the way, he was structuring withdrawals, not deposits. He was withdrawing them. Oh, oh. that's yeah. an important detail. Yeah, yeah. both he and, and Rush Limbaugh were structuring withdrawals. So I have a question for you. Can you be a Smurf when you structure withdrawals, or is it only when you structure deposits? 
We have only used that term for de people who are making deposits. Oh, okay. But structuring as a crime is both for withdrawals and deposits. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think I just wanted to use the term smurf. <laughs> that was an interesting financial crimes term. <laughs> now, it's ironic that Elliot Spitzer was caught through structuring because as the former attorney general of New York, that's how he was able to catch white collar criminals and break up prostitution rings because these reports were generated because they were structuring. And I guess he thought because he was on the opposite end of the law that he would be able to outsmart them, but he got played by his own playbook. Ironically. <laughs> right. He withdrew $4,500 at, I guess, different branches of the bank, but within a 24-hour period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, with structuring, it doesn't have to be at the exact same branch. It could be from different locations, um, as Professor Rusin indicated. So after you have placed your ill-gotten money into the financial system, you need to go through the process of washing that money to make it look like it's legitimate. Now that process is called layering. Now that's a process in which you can use all sorts of tricks to throw off law enforcement if they are on your trail or if they want to follow the money and see how you laundered your how you laundered your ill-gotten funds. Now this can include transferring the money via bulk cash smuggling via electronic wire transferring to different jurisdictions. Okay, so the idea is like through the multiple transactions and um, going all sorts of different directions, crossing state boundaries, for example. Exactly. It muddies the water enough to where criminals can't, or law enforcement can't keep track of it. Is that the general idea? That is the general idea, or to at least make it much more difficult for law enforcement to track it. Now, every time it jumps from one jurisdiction to another, a different law enforcement agency that's in charge of that particular jurisdiction will then take it over. So it's really difficult for law enforcement to coordinate all those jurisdictions. And it's important to reiterate that it doesn't exactly have to be cash. It could be gold, jewels, or any other valuable items. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Am I the only person that thinks it's ironic that it's laundering and muddying the waters at the same time? Kind of interesting. <laughs> Um, we also have a phase called integration, um, and that is using that money after series of layering and muddying the water to purchase assets. This effectively ends the money trail. It hides what before was some sort of cash or monetary value into a solidified asset. It could be a crime lord buying, I don't know, a large yacht, or it could be... Um, Real estate. Um, there are a couple of different options. Some people just use um, gold and jewels, um, which in effect makes layering the same level as integration. But but generally speaking, integration is when you change the money into uh, an actual asset. I know in the past, a lot of banks and financial institutions just used what we call a rule-based approach when it comes to due diligence and knowing your customer um, process, but they've shifted to a risk-based approach. Now, Professor, could you explain to us the difference between the two and what the main advantage to switching to risk-based approach is? Sure, sure. Well, with a rule-based approach, you are laying out detailed rules. If anybody structures more than five deposits in a week, 
that are just under the $10,000 threshold, then we want you to write a suspicious activity report. Well, what if it's a restaurant or a taqueria that has legitimate reasons for wanting to bring in $6,520 on Monday and $3,430 on Tuesday and so on and so forth. And yet you know that this is a customary amount of revenue for that particular business. There's nothing unusual about it at all. And yet you need to waste time and, and human resources to fill out that suspicious activity report. On the other hand, there could be someone who knows exactly how to get around all of those tripwires mm -hmm. and launder their money in a very clever way. You have many reasons to suspect that individual could be up to something. We want that bank to file a suspicious activity report. The kinds of things that we may not notice it, when we came up with our original set of rules. For a long time in China, there was a rule book with 25 rules for those banks. If any of these th conditions occur, then we want you to file a suspicious activity report. Well, if you are a criminal who wants to launder your money, you just have to get hold of that rule book learn the rules. and learn the rules to get around it. So risk-based approach gives the banks more independence for how they can more efficiently use their investigation staff as well as their screening algorithms to decide how best are they going to report suspicious activity. It's not perfect, but it's certainly more efficient and more effective than just having a rules-based approach. Wow, it sounds like it. Thanks for that explanation. All right. Thank you so All much right. for coming. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Those are the three layers, three stages, shall we say, of money laundering. So we have placement, placing your money into the formal financial system, which could involve structuring, and remember, structuring is purposely depositing money under reporting thresholds to avoid detection. Second stage is layering, in which you ping pong your money through a series of different transactions to throw off the trail. Ping ponging. I like it. <laughs> and that final stage of money laundering is integration, as John mentioned. That's essentially when you're able to use that money because it seems like it's legitimate money to purchase assets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's when your mobster starts living the high life. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell. In a sense, integration is almost like a proof of itself. When you see a business that shouldn't be that profitable, but they have expensive cars or they're riding around in a Bugatti or something, then it mm -hmm. brings a red flag. You yeah, know, absolutely. You ask a few questions. Yeah. Um, so after that good summary on, on the uh, different steps or stages of money laundering, let's uh, look at the, the body, the governing body used to um, prevent money laundering. And that is the UN FATF. FATF stands for Financial Action Task Force, um, which, um, again, it's the UN body for anti-money laundering or countering the financing of terrorism. It was established in 1989, primarily centered around targeting drug trafficking. 
So FATF's job is essentially to do research and policy recommendations for member nations of the United Nations. FATF is not a law enforcement agency. All it really does is set guidelines and best practices that would best counter money laundering and terrorist financing. Now, one of the biggest cornerstones of these guidance and best practices that FATF issues are what we call the FATF 40, in which they issue 40 recommendations on how best to implement countermeasures for financial crime and money laundering. The FATF 40. I think it's also important to note that with the FATF, there is no centralized body overseeing any of these countries. It's the unique part about FATF's organization is that it's done through self-evaluations or mutual evaluations. So really, it's just one company's financial organization investigating another country's and providing recommendations based on the criteria set up by FATF, which is kind of a unique form of, of government, I'd say. It's a very different form of oversight. Yeah. Now, John, you mentioned the FATF mutual evaluations. A mutual evaluation is when FATF puts together a group of experts to go in and investigate the framework for a country's money laundering and anti-terrorism body of legal framework to best counter that. Mutual evaluations are a very long and lengthy process, so it does not happen each year. It's not an annual thing. There are some countries that haven't had mutual evaluations for a decade. Um, So that's something to keep in mind for FATF. But that doesn't mean that other countries aren't keeping up to date with staying within the lines of the FATF 40 recommendations. Because FATF has this thing where they have a list of countries that essentially gives a color code as to how well that country is doing. In oh, terms the of... FATF sees color. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought up the color factor because um, this is the, the true power behind FATF. As you mentioned, it's, it's not a law enforcement agency, but it does have the ability to blacklist certain countries, as you were about to say, um, meaning that other members of the FATF will have no financial dealings with them. Um, Examples of those were what, um, I don't know, North Korea, Iran, exactly. So, Mm -hmm. Although Iran is still a question mark as a result of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the JCPOA that was adopted just quite recently in 2015, I believe. Oh, good point. So that's still in the works, but still, at least in terms of U.S. dollar transactions, you want to be, according to the recommendations of FATF, you want to just avoid any financial, specifically U.S. dollar transactions pertaining to Iran. So the criteria for that blacklist then would be if the country is known to be participating in terrorism financing, or is it money laundering in general? Yeah, money laundering, terrorism financing, if that country has a history of Let's take, for example, North Korea, of human rights abuses. If there is no anti-money laundering framework within that country, North Korea is quite famous for even dealing with the ivory trade and hacking other countries, other banks within those countries. There have been several cases in which North Korea has blatantly 
participated in criminal activities in order to finance their WMD program. So North Korea definitely deserves its place on the blacklist. Okay. But there are there's also the gray list. Right. Which is there are different shades of gray. There are fifty shades of gray <laughs> on the FATF gray list. So you can be on the lower end the lower end of the gray scale, the higher end of the gray scale. And that's essentially you're not exactly blacklisted, but you're not exactly known for having the best AML CFT framework. Okay. That, that has a lot of countries depending and I think it also depends on specific financial dealings with that country, like if you're dealing with a particular country that has a robust industry sector oh, in a okay. particular industry. A little bit higher risk yeah. in that case. Yeah, okay. so it depends from country to country. So correct me if I'm wrong, but um, if a country is seen as high risk by a mutual evaluation and it doesn't have a financial institution or financial intelligence unit, which we haven't talked about yet, um, <laughs> does that guarantee that it will be a gray list? Financial intelligence units, as John mentioned, or FIUs, are these central hubs within each country that are responsible for receiving, analyzing, and disseminating to the correct authorities the disclosure of financial information concerning suspicious financial activity. So, so for example, if a bank has suspicions that one of their customers is engaged in suspicious financial activities, they would file a SAR, a suspicious activity report, and that suspicious activity report would go to that financial intelligence unit of that country. Now, in the United States, our financial intelligence unit is housed within the Treasury Department, and they're called FinCEN, which stands for Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. That suspicious activity report that the bank files will go to FinCEN, and then FinCEN would then decide if this warrants further investigation. And if it does warrant further investigation, they will disseminate it to the proper law enforcement or intelligence authority. Mm, interesting. Okay, so they kind of are directly over banks in a sense that, you know, rather than putting the burden completely on. I don't know, a compliance department or internal audits or something like that. We have the resident FIU or financial intelligence unit overseeing that. Yeah, exactly. So instead of having the banks having to sift through all the SARS to determine whether or not they should report it to law enforcement, they just give that report to FinCEN and then FinCEN will then decide what to do with it. All right. So one of the main currencies that that financial intelligence units deal in, besides, of course, currency, is <laughs> financial intelligence. Um, Hence the name, financial intelligence <laughs> units. Exactly. But I thought I'd tell our listeners um, kind of what constitutes financial intelligence. Absolutely. And it's basically any information that's related to financial transactions, the metadata, as it were, of any given transaction. Um, routing numbers, accounting numbers, the... Uh, destination, the origin, um, and uh, those just clues that would give the the investigator or whoever it might be a clue on uh, an idea of 
where the transaction might be going, what its purpose might be, and whether it's going through one of those questionable gray or blacklisted countries. So I think the financial intelligence is a quite important aspect of, of a FIU, obviously denoted by its name. <laughs> yes, yes, and that financial intelligence is what, given it's a proper suspicious activity report, all that financial intelligence should be included within that suspicious activity report, including the name, accounting numbers, as you all mentioned. Now that we've um, had a good look at FIUs and uh, reviewing back to North Korea, we know that North Korea has done some very questionable things, obviously, but the main reason it, it's blacklisted by FATF has very little to do with just money laundering or any, or especially not terrorism financing, mm -hmm. which brings us to our next topic, sanctions. Now, sanctions are important because sanctions are, first, are restrictions placed on um, any sort of financial transaction. So they could be sectoral sanctions. They could be placed on a sector of a certain country's economy. You could levy a sanction against an entire country, which would prevent that country from doing business with other countries. And that's sort of the, the punishment that's been placed on North Korea for proliferating. Exactly. Exactly. And as you mentioned, there are different types of sanctions. The sectoral sanctions, an example of that would be Russia after the invasion of the Crimea by Russia. Oh, the, the oil United, industry. Exactly. We put sectoral sanctions on the oil industry for Russia. Uh, a specific person or company can be sanctioned. We call that targeted sanctions because it's targeted for a specific entity. And there are secondary sanctions. Now, secondary sanctions are sanctions that are opposed by someone for doing any sort of financial transaction with someone or some entity that has been sanctioned. So if I am a business person and I want to do business with someone who has been sanctioned by either the United States, the United Nations, or any other body that has the authority to levy sanctions, I can then be sanctioned for doing business with that sanctioned entity, and that's what secondary sanctions are. In the United States, we have different bodies that can levy sanctions. There's the Department of State, which levies sanctions specifically for foreign organizations, Department of Treasury, and Within the Department of Treasury, we have OFAC, which is the Office of Foreign Nassets Control, and they have what is called the Specially Designated Nationals List, or the SDN List. This SDN List is a list of individuals and entities that have been sanctioned. This list includes those foreign and domestic individuals, companies that have been designated by the United States. Now, the United States, of course, is not the only body that has the authority to levy sanctions. We've mentioned the United Nations, the EU, the United Kingdom. They all have their own different sanctioning regimes. Going back to list versus risk base, couldn't the bad guys just get a hold of those public lists, whether it's SDN or something, and then just make a new company that doesn't have the same name as all of those? That is certainly a strategy that criminals have used and are continuing to use. 
However, as we, as you mentioned that we just talked about rule-based versus risk-based, the list is essentially one of the first lines of defense in mm. countering money laundering and okay. financial crime. There are, of course, other mechanisms that we can use, such as the type of transactions a particular that a particular account has in their history, the transaction types. So while, let's say, I'm on the SDN list, of course I'm not going to open up an account under my name because they're going to block it. So I'll create some company or an alias, but regardless of if I'm on that list, if my transactions are still fishy, mm. the bank can still catch it. So those lists are just a, one of the many lines of defense that we have against financial crime and money laundering. So just having a shell company with a different name won't save you if you're still doing the same sketchy crap for lack of a better word, right? It, that's, that's the idea. That's what we hope our law enforcement and anti-money laundering <laughs> officials do. But you bring up the term shell companies. Now, we've all heard of front companies, shell companies, or some of you may even have heard of shelf companies. Now, what exactly are those things? Well, a shell company is a company on paper that has no physical address. But shell companies, it's important to recognize that they're not inherently... So they don't exist? or <laughs> They exist on paper. Oh, okay. They just okay. don't have a brick-and-mortar location. For example, I can have a shell company called ABZ Incorporated. Okay, so it's an institution, definitely, but it's not necessarily a physical... Yeah, I'm not going to have a building that says ABZ Incorporated. It's just a company that was... without name anyway, right? <laughs> Actually, I think it's a a lot of shell companies have these seemingly dumb or generic innocuous names. That is one of the characteristics of a shell company because they are just companies on paper. Which why is why that was an excellent example of a shell company name. I just thought it was dumb <laughs> as a name in general. Nothing against your taste. I know you've got good taste. <laughs> yeah, look, shell companies... They could be used for illicit or legitimate reasons. Now, why would a legitimate person want to use a shell company? It could be because they just want an ad litter of privacy. They don't want just anybody to know what business they're doing, how much of it. Now, because of that nature of shell companies, because it does give that ad litter privacy, that's what makes it so attractive for criminals. Who would want to hide or disguise the money? Okay, so uh, pardon the interruption again. This time I do have something legitimate to add, <laughs> but um, or to ask. But uh, so, in the sense, is it kind of like torrent or or certain cryptocurrencies where like you don't have to be um, a illegitimate actor to use it, but a lot of them tend to to use it. Is it kind of the same way in that regard? Yeah, exactly. So if someone has a shell company, it's not inherently an indicator that they are up to suspicious activity. But a lot of bad actors do use shell companies okay. because of the advantages it could offer them. Front companies, on the other hand, are just inherently bad. Those, yeah. <laughs> those are just a facade to cover up illicit activity. Yeah, pretty much, yes. Okay. But the difference is they have an actual physical address. It's a place you can go to. 
for example, a laundromat as a front company for illegal gambling activities, uh, drug trafficking. Or uh, massage places as a front for like human trafficking and that yes, kind of thing. Okay. Yes, yes. So front companies are different than shell companies in that a, it's an actual physical business that may do an actual, may deal in things that their business says it's for. Like they may actually be a laundromat. They may actually do dry cleaning services, but that's not what that company is primarily used for. Mm, okay, interesting. And uh, I think front companies and shell companies are some of the more common phrases that among these this triad that we've mentioned. But the shelf country company is kind of an, an interesting idea. Uh, uh, so it's if I understand right, it's it's kind of a company that doesn't necessarily need a physical address. It's kind of like a an idea at first. And it's not used for anything. It just kind of waits there until somebody decides to sell it or, you know, somebody can use it to basically in name have a long life, have a long company. Exactly. Now, that's a really good summary of what a shelf company is. A shelf company is a shell company that has been put on the shelf. Mm, Okay. Now, a lot of both legitimate and illegitimate actors would want a shell company that has a longer history because maybe they want to get a longer line of credit or they just want something that has a longer history because it will look better for that particular business. So some people will create shell companies and just let it accumulate history over time and then they will then sell that shell company to someone who wants a longer history. Okay, so rather than being a different classification of company, it's really just how you use your shell company. If you use it to just sit on the shelf, then it becomes a shelf company? Pretty much, yes. Cool, that's interesting. (laughs) Exactly right. All right. Well, um, so we dove into this this, uh, world of of, uh, financial crime and money laundering. Uh, We've learned about the different types of companies and the, uh, the different steps to money laundering. Um, definition of financial crime and all of that. What do you think is the uh, the major takeaway for our listeners? Um, I mean, I, I think that uh, the two to five percent of the world economy being illicit is a pretty big deal after after what Professor Rusin said, right? I mean, what are some other comments you think are important to remember? I think it's important to remember that. There are a lot of misconceptions about money laundering. Mm, okay. And here in this podcast, we want to hopefully clear up any misconceptions and inform the public about money laundering. A lot of those big con- misconceptions is due to the romantic portrayal of certain criminals. Oh, right. And there is this idea like the Al Capone gangster type of prohibition era gangsters. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also misconceptions about what money laundering is, what it isn't how it's done. Many people don't even know how it's done, probably for the better. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, agreed. But there, agree more. there's a lot of mystery around money laundering, not just in terms of how much money is actually laundered, but in terms of public understanding of money laundering. Hopefully, what I think the listeners would hopefully take away from our podcast is if they can inform themselves about money laundering and how it affects not only the world economy, but your specific economy, whether you're listening in the States 
or anywhere else, money laundering has a real impact on the individual person because a lot of criminals, say if they have a front company, they are taking away business from legitimate companies. Yes. I'm really glad you touched on the externalities. That's one thing that our um, our resident expert mentioned earlier. Mm. That, you know, when when the money is taken out of that economy, it squashes the business of legitimate um, owners, and and uh, it can be a tragic thing when people are just trying to make make a buck or two when these criminal organizations are prospering. Yes, um, exactly, and the crimes that underlie money laundering, human trafficking, drug trafficking, mm-hmm. those have real life consequences. You know, drug trafficking, obviously there's the opioid epidemic in the United States, although that has been a result of legitimate doctor prescriptions, there is an uh, underlying yes. drug market behind the opioid crisis. There is the issue of cartels, you know, these cartels, because they're so pervasive in how influential they are not only in the western hemisphere but also in the eastern hemisphere you have different criminal syndicates all over the world who are prospering who are murdering others who at the expense of the average person are living the high life Mm -hmm. and that's something that we would like to bring attention to and to ideally make a difference in Mm, very good point, and and I think that that um, that's the best approach. I think um, everybody needs to know about it because everybody can help. Um, exactly. The, the average bank owner, the business owner, you know, anybody who sees something can make a difference. Um, all right. Well, um, I don't have anything more to add. I think that was uh, an excellent synopsis and and a good platform for our listeners to to get started and. Um, yeah. Join us next time for the terrorism financing portion. We're going to be covering the Arab Bank case. Look for our podcast under FML. And it's not what you think it is. It's Framing Money Laundering. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on our first episode of the FML podcast, Framing Money Laundering. Again, I am your host, Brianna Hartley. I'm your co-host, John. And we hope to have you join us for our future episodes. Thank you very much. Song is titled No Cadillac by Loyalty Freak Music, provided by Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, and you can find us at our website, framingmoneylaundering.midcreate.net. That's framingmoneylaundering.midcreate.net.